Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New, the New Books Network. I am your host today, Jingyi Li from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Dr. Daniel Park with us to talk about his new book, Licentious Fictions, Ninjo and the 19th Century Japanese Novel, published by Columbia University Press in 2019. Daniel is currently an associate professor at the University of Hong Kong, researching and teaching about early modern and modern Japanese literature. In this book, Daniel explores where ninjo, or in English, human emotions, can be situated in early modern Japanese narratives. More importantly, this study challenges the division between the so-called early modern and modern Japan, that's usually marked by the Meiji Restoration. In Daniel's argument, um, human emotions in narrative practices constitutes the part in literature of the 19th century as a continuous literary historical space. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us today in New Books on Japanese Studies. Thank you so much, Jingyi, for for inviting me to this uh, podcast and for having me here. I'm very honored and pleased that I can talk to the audience, to everyone about my recently published book today. Thank you. The honor is all mine. Um, so this book, to my knowledge, is the first full-length study on this genre called Ninjobon, which is sometimes translated as sentiment novels. And I truly enjoyed reading it. So how did you become interested in Japanese literature? Well, um, this is, um, thank you for this question. Um, this is really a question that really um, um, relates to my, to my life and how I grew up. Um, I, um, so it's a personal question. I, I was born and raised in um, Berlin, Germany. So I'm a German citizen uh, to, uh, uh, to a German father and a Japanese mother. But I did not speak or read Japanese at home at all. So I grew up in a perfect plan. Uh, entirely German language environment. Um, but later as a high school student, um, so this is actually a little bit of torches history, but I went to a French middle and high school with all subjects taught in French. And I um, had also very, at that school, very excellent French and German literature teachers who gave me really a broad exposure to French literature and to kind of big 19th century novels. And I loved that. Um, and as a German speaker and also soon a literature lover, it was really a particular delight for me to read these French texts in French. And with my Japanese heritage background, I was not able really to speak and read Japanese, but I made many trips to Japan um, as a youth during the summer vacations. And then I developed a desire not only to intellectually know more about Japan, but also in particular to be able to read Japanese literature in the original in the same way that I was able to read 
French literature in French. So this is what initially really drove me to um, undergraduate and graduate level studies in Japanese literature in Germany first, and then later in the PhD um, program in New York. So um, it's a process that has to do with my biography. That is such a such an international background you yeah. have there. Um, <laughs> so. so, do you think your uh, colorful experience of living and visiting um, different countries mm-hmm. have any impact on your on your studies on your research of Japanese literature? Yes, I think so because I really um, so when I initially um, embarked on my graduate. Um, my graduate education or when I wrote my MA thesis and also even as an undergraduate, I always thought that um, I wanted, if I study Japan, I also thought it's very important to study um, China. So I was actually interested in this kind of, you could call it a transnational dimension of um, Japanese literature. So I was kind of interested in the, um, in the, you know, the, really the border crossing dimension in which you kind of, um, um, have to think about a kind of, or in which is kind of productive to think about Japanese literature. And I, of course, I mean, there is this modern dimension. I came to kind of like Japanese literature, kind of, or be interested in Japanese literature from this uh, background of reading French literature and German literature. And, uh, but then also I was interested very much in pre-modern Japan at the beginning. Um, and I also minored in um, classical Chinese when I studied at the University of Heidelberg. And my initial project um, when I um, did my MA, but then later also started my PhD studies at uh, Columbia was on Heian period Kanbun um, writings. And uh, so Kanbun meaning um, classical Sinitic uh, prose, so prose that Japanese authors uh, would write um, following the um, rules of um, classical Chinese syntax. Um, and uh, so that was really um, how I kind of came to, uh, how I started my graduate studies. Um, and I really um, liked that project. It was a kind of fascinating project, but at the same time, um, it also did not really address my uh, so much because it was a very kind of strongly focused kind of early uh, pre-modern uh, project and it did not really um, address so much the interest that I had in um, modernity but also in um, you know modern European literatures so I came to be interested more strongly later on I kind of changed my research topic and uh, became more interested in the 19th century which is really a moment and that's also of course the um, the topic of my book, which is a moment where all these various types of literacy, um, pre-modern types of literacy, Sinitic, classical Sinitic literacy, uh, of course, also vernacular um, Japanese and Chinese literacy, but also uh, Western, um, English, um, French, um, German, and all kinds of literacy kind of types of literacies come to um, um, interact. You could almost say clash uh, in a very um, idiosyncratic but also very productive way. So I became fascinated with that uh, very particular moment um, in Japanese uh, history and literary history, which is the 19th century, as a very unique uh, moment of literary exchange. Um, and that, I think, has to do with um, kind of my background. Um, of course, um, yes. So. 
Yes. That is so wonderful. And I, that, that, that just listening to you talk about your, uh, your, your life journey makes your book make so much sense too, because all these, I, I was really amazed by how well all these different types of literacy were connected. And now it just makes sense, all the Kanban, all the European literature. So since your book is all about Ninjo Bon mm-hmm. and Ninjo, this mm-hmm. human emotion is really what connects all these different literatures. Mm-hmm. Um, can we? Can you tell us about what Ninjo Bon is, what they, I guess, as a genre, what they are, and why were they so popular? Right. Um, well, Ninja Bon uh, is a genre of, um, you could call it sentimental fiction, which was um, actually an early, I mean, it's a genre that came into being in the 1830s. Um, and in the first chapter of my book, I kind of try to make a more kind of a broader, kind of paint a broader picture of how um, Ninja discourse itself is a discourse that is deeply uh, connected to discussions about uh, literature in the East Asian, you could say, pre-modern and early modern tradition. And there are, um, from very early on, discussions about poetry in terms of ninjo, discussions that highlight that um, poetry, in particular, Sinitic poetry, which was a very highbrow genre, um, think just of the very canonical poetry of the Shujing, the Book of Odes, um, that were discussed in terms of their representation or expression of, of Qing or Zhou Ninjo. Um, and in line with these early discourses on poetry, which really um, carry over to Japan in the Edo period, into the Edo period, there are a lot of confusion, but also a kokugaku nativist discussions about Sinitic poet, classical Sinitic poetry, waka poetry, as media of expressions or representation of Ninjo. And... Um, but then what particularly interested me is this kind of um, connection between these um, early literary discussions about poetry in Ninjo and the and vernacular genres, in particular the novel, uh, Shosetsu, uh, which starts to um, be an important genre or which kind of becomes imported, you could almost say, to Japan in the 18th century uh, through this kind of broader movement of importation of vernacular, a Chinese vernacular literacy into Japan. And in the 18th century, for the first time, really, we have a discussions of the shosetsu in terms of ninjo um, as um, what the shosetsu or the novel um, kind of um, represents. And uh, ninjo itself is a very kind of a fraught term. It's uh, originally, I mean, it's an old term which you find in early Chinese discussions, I mean, basically just means, as you said before, it means human emotion, and it could cover all kinds of emotions like joy, anger, um, delight, um, hatred, whatever. Uh, But in these literary discussions, Ninjo, um, in many contexts, actually uh, acquires a kind of more narrow definition, meaning um, um, love and um, sexual desire, amorous feelings, uh, erotic feelings, and in from the 18th century onward, the novel 
Also, actually, other genres, the theater, the jewelry puppet theater as well, there is a kind of a broader range of vernacular genres that become associated with this representation of ninjo or love and erotic desire. Um, and this really covers over. So there's this kind of kind of longer prehistory of talking about a fiction um, in terms of its representation of ninjo. And uh, when in the 1830s, Tamenaga Shunsui, who's really the most canonical author, who's really the one who founds, you could almost say, founds this genre of ninjobon in the 1830s, when he founds this genre in kind of indirect ways, uh, this um, uh, genre um, uh, makes reference to this earlier prehistory of uh, ninjo in various discussions of poetry and fiction. And I wanted to kind of highlight uh, that uh, kind of connection and Ninjobon itself is a kind of lowbrow genre. It's a genre that um, has been discussed, or that was discussed by contemporary critics as uh, one um, kind of uh, sub-branch of uh, the shōsetsu. Um, it's a kind of, it's a gesaku genre, so-called gesaku, belong kind of playful uh, writing, kind of a lowbrow, well, lowbrow, or kind of um, vernacular Japanese fiction. Um, and I mean, there is some sense that it was a genre that was more uh, geared toward like female readers, although I'm also not sure if we should really believe that. I, I think if you actually look at readers' records in the Meiji period, it was very popular in the Meiji period. Uh, men actually read uh, Ninjobon um, as well. Um, um, and it's a kind of lowbrow genre, but at the same time, this kind of Ninjo discourse, uh, Tamenaga Shinsui has a very conscious discourse about Ninjo in his writings, this ninjo discourse really makes reference to a kind of broader um, history of ninjo um, discourse in the not just the Japanese, but the East Asian tradition. And in my first chapter, I really try to uh, kind of outline that broader field um, of um, kind of ninjo discourse, um, which I argue then uh, was really fundamental for the way that the... Um, modern Japanese novel uh, in across the Edo-Meiji transition um, for the way that the modern Japanese novel came into being. And in my book, I'm actually not just, I mean, I'm, I'm just cast Ninjabon in my first chapter, but then I really try in the subsequent chapters to show how um, other important representatives of the novel across the Edo-Meiji divide um, really uh, make reference to this broader understanding or these kind of what I would call now a ninjo discourse. So my second chapter, I discuss uh, Kyokute Bakin's Nanso Satomi Hakken Den or the eight, uh, the eight uh, dog warriors, the, uh, the, the, um, the, um, the biographies of the, um, eight dog, the, the, the dog warriors of the Nanso Satomi clan, which is a very important um, yomihon is a book for reading um, produced over decades in the early 19th century, between uh, 19, the 1910s and the 1930s, early 1940s even, um, and which was a much more hybrid genre of the shōsetsu. Often the shōsetsu itself is kind of seen as equivalent to yomihon in the um, late Edo period. And uh, this is a book of martial fiction, but I really show how Bakin is very conscious about uh, love and erotic desire, often a very visceral, in a very visceral um, uh, way. Um, 
And later on in other chapters, I really show, I kind of try to show how the Meiji novel, uh, how Meiji literary discourse, but also Meiji fiction itself, how the Meiji novel itself really continues to carry on this uh, concern with um, a ninjo. So in that way, I try to kind of weave in um, uh, an understanding of Meiji fiction into this kind of broader discursive history of uh, ninjo in the pre-modern tradition and also um, um, uh, late Edo uh, fiction, where I argue ninjo really starts to be dramatized in narrative plots. This is a kind of, um, broadly speaking, the, the, the topic of my book, the subject, the um, kind of um, the, the, the framework of my, of my book. That's uh, that, that's quite fascinating, and there are definitely um, some points that you mentioned I'd like to go back to. Sure. For example, um, you mentioned that Ninjobon was considered, so sentimental novels right. were considered kind of lowbrow, whereas um, this Hakken uh, and this mm -hmm. um, Eight Dogs Chronicles mm -hmm was considered more sophisticated. Why was there such a distinction between Ninjobo and some of the other types of narratives that you mentioned? Can you maybe elaborate on what these dis distinctions were mm -hmm. and why they existed? Sure. Um, I mean, first of all, this has to do with the format of the text. If you read the uh, Tamenaga Shinsui's Ninjobon, and this is actually not just the case for Ninjobon, but for other vernacular genres as well. Um, uh, the ninjobon are very, I mean, they're often written in a dialogic format. So they really put very, very heavy emphasis on speech, on contemporary speech. And you have that in other genres like the the Sharebon um, for the first time, which is a book about um, the pleasure quarters. It's a kind of genre that precedes the ninjobon. Um, uh, often in terms of the guides of um, pleasure quarter um, interactions, courtesans and customers, but later also you have satir satirical um, um, fiction that really pays very heavy emphasis on dialogue, and Ninjobon do so too. And uh, so there is a kind of emphasis on kind of lowbrow kind of contemporary speech, uh, whereas um, Bakin, for example, is very conscious about language. So Bakin uh does not uh, represent contemporary speech almost not at all he is interested in vernacular language but at the same time he tries to in his narrative prose to kind of elevate uh that language by kind of hybridizing it with um more hybro forms of literacy for example a cinetic uh, literacy and he kind of devises of a very idiosyncr idiosyncratic hybrid style that mediates between lowbro and highbro registers, but certainly does not represent contemporary speech. So Bakin is a very, I mean, he's a, you could say, stylistic genius. He um, really devises of this very kind of uh, new um, kind of um, idiosyncratic um, language, which was more highbro. And, and also, it's a purely narrative. So even if there is some dialogue in Bakin, in, in Hakkenden, it's never uh, dialogic in the way that Shinsui wrote this, um, his kind of Ninjobon and this, um, it's um, as Yomihon, a book for uh, reading, also this kind of very genre designation uh, says, it does not really emphasize so much. It has illustrations and illustrations in Yomihon are important, but 
they are not the primary focus. So the primary focus is really on the literary kind of the, the literary dimension, the the um, the you could say the narrative itself, uh, which um, and also which um, and that's a also very important characteristic of Yomihon is very heavily indebted to Chinese sources, uh, classical um, Sinitic sources, but then also vernacular sources. So Bakin more than any other. Um, or than most, more than most um, other authors of Gesaku of his time, was extremely educated, an extremely literate author, much more than Shinsu. Um, and he really weaves in uh, tons of references to not just uh, Chinese fiction, Chinese literature, but also um, Japanese literature. And his readers were, um, you could read his Yomihon as a, if you even if you were not super educated, you could still enjoy them. But if you were very educated, you would enjoy them even more because you could discern all these intertextual um, this intertextual play going on, and this uh, wealth of intellectual play just makes it a more highbrow um, kind of a genre with much more highbrow ambitions than, for example, Ninjobon. And the last thing that I would kind of like to mention here is this. Um, a didactic and moral discourse in Yomihon. So what you have is in Bakin a very, very conscious um, discourse on, I mean, Bakin is very famous for his kind of slogan of Kanzen Chouaku, um, um, promote virtue and chastise evil, but he takes this quite seriously. So he has a very a serious kind of highbro um, moral ambition for his writings, uh, which almost kind of um, make them on a line with the Confucian classics. Um, and even if he's kind of, and, and what I argue is that there's a very weird tension in his Yomihon writings between, the, between this kind of um, highbrow uh, discourse and his highbrow ambition for the novel and his interest, almost visceral interest in the kind of writing of um, licentious desire, amorous emotion, um, which kind of tries to almost, or which almost kind of threatens to subvert the moral ambition of the novel. So there is this kind of tension that I explore in my analysis of um, Yomihon and, um, and which really carries on into the Meiji novel. And, uh, but to come back to Ninjobon, Ninjobon um, uh, don't really, uh, or to a much, much lesser extent have this kind of hybro uh, moral um, ambition. Uh, Taminaga Shinsui actually makes reference to this um, moral discourse as well, but, um, Kind of given his kind of narrative format, it's uh, you cannot you cannot take it as seriously as for as in Bakin's case, and there is actually also from quite early on a very negative discourse about Ninjobon. Uh, when critics discuss Ninjobon, they really discuss it in terms of a very licentious genre, a genre that is uh, almost lewd, that um, shows these kind of um, interactions between customers and courtesans or like lovers. Um, also outside the pleasure quarter, actually, in, 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 the, in Ninjobon's case. Uh, but then um, there's a very negative discourse about um, Ninjobon as a kind of licentious genre, which um, in Bakin's Hakenden is not discussed in this way, but there, this kind of negative discourse about discussing the novel also carries on into the Meiji period. So there is, in the Meiji period, uh, also a weird tension of on the one hand, really wanting to elevate, like Bakin did, the novel as a kind of highbro genres with very high kind of moral and later in the Meiji period civilizational ambitions, 
but at the same time also discussing the novel as lowbrow and licentious. And this kind of negative discourse about the novel really has its origins in the way Ninjobon were discussed in the early in the late Edo period, in the early 19th century. So I kind of try to highlight these continuities there in my book. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with early modern Japanese literature, right. would you say that um, Yomi Hong or um, books for reading are consi- were considered highbrow because they use Chinese vernacular language and talk about morality, while Ninjobon was considered lowbrow because, because, well, because they discussed love? In a way, you could say that. Um, I need to say that Yomihon, of course, were never truly highbrow. And um, there, I mean, because there, I mean, there could never, I mean, after all, there is still a genre of fiction and if you look about the um, kind of genre hierarchy in the kind of pre-modern setting, and that really, car- I mean, that's the case until late Edo, early Meiji, fictional genres in general tended to be seen as lowbrow. Um, but what Bakin, and I think Bakin is, Kyokte Bakin is kind of an exceptional author. He's really um, uh, very uh, unique. Uh, he's certainly not the only one, but then he's unique in his really, in the kind of extremely strong claim he makes or in the attempt he makes to kind of elevate his um, uh, his his uh, writing by making it intertextually rich, by making it educated. He himself is an extremely educated guy. And um, so he treads a very kind of subtle line between popular fiction and educated um and kind of highbrow writing. It's never completely, um, and vernacular fiction as William Hatberg also kind of really shows um, in great, uh, in a kind of very interesting way in his recent book, is never uh, purely educated. It cannot be. But there are these attempts by authors like Bakin in the late Edo period to kind of um, bring it to a different sphere. Um, and um, and that's what um, Yomihon uh, do. Um, and ninjo itself is also very ambiguous because the term ninjo was used in, as I said before in um, in this interview, was very important in discussions of poetry in the pre-modern, uh, kind of from like very early on, and especially Sinitic poetry, kanshi, which was an extremely highbrow genre, much more so than yomihon or any fictional genre. And... Um, Ninjo had this um, uh, kind of, um, you could say it has this kind of, there's this literary of a literary history of discussing poetry very much in, in terms of Ninjo. So it, it's an attribute of a very highbrow genre. But as I, and that really carries over to the low, more lowbrow genre of, of fiction in the 18th century and the 19th century. Um, but what I would still argue is that by its very kind of Ninjo being love, and amorous uh, feelings, and also erotic desire, sexual desire. Um, and that's by itself, it's kind of, and human emotion, it's, it's very human, it's never immoral per se, but it's also human. So ninjo can be moral, but it can be also from a Confucian perspective, it can be also immoral. And it, by its very kind of, by its humaneness, it has the potential of always destabilize 
even a hybrid genre like poetry. So you have these discourses, these discussions in the Edo period of classical Sinitic poetry being a very hybrid genre, but still, for example, in neo-Confucian discussions, there being a danger of it being destabilized by its representation of, of Ninjo. So um, Ninjo is a kind of thing that um, literature does and represents both poetry and later fiction, but that always has a kind of potential to undermine or threaten or even subvert the kind of higher um, um, moral and later civilizational um, ambitions that literature carries at the same time. And what my project tries to do is to kind of tease out this field of tension. Yeah, I definitely want to hear more um, about how the nuance of Ninjo changed mm-hmm. um, after right. the the 19th century. But since you mentioned Bucking, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, when you when you said that Bucking used very strong language to show his uh, opinions instead, I really had to try not to laugh because for my own research, I sometimes have to read Bucking's diaries and... From these diaries, it seemed that Bakin really hated Tamenaga Shunsi. This, you mentioned, as you mentioned, he was the founder of the whole Ninja Bon genre. Um, what, what's, what do you think was going on between Bakin and Shunsi? Why was Bakin so mean to him? I just could never figure out. Right. That's a that's a, a good question. I mean, I think Bakin. I mean, he's very proud author. Because he knows how great he is, he knows that he's so much more educated than others. He's um, extremely prolific. He, uh, to a certain extent, I mean, reads vernacular and classical um, Chinese. And he, I mean, simply speaking, I think he simply looks down on um, Xunzi. So I mean, there is a um, that there's this dimension uh, for sure. I mean, very easily uh, speaking. But on the other hand, there's also, and I kind of discussed this to um, a certain extent in my book, there is uh, there are other reasons as well, um, which are maybe more subtle. Um, Ninjobon, Tamenaga Shunsui's uh, Ninjobon in the 1830s were actually extremely popular. They were extremely popular um, to the extent that publishers asked Bakin to write in the Ninjobon mode, to kind of publish kind of Chihon, so-called uh, middle, uh, middle-sized books, which was another term for uh, Ninjobon himself, to appeal to the reader. And Bakin doesn't really like that so much uh, because, you know, he um, doesn't think this to be, um, um, you know, what he really wants to do. I mean, it goes against his kind of uh, greater um, ambitions for uh, fiction writing, his moral ambitions, his literary ambitions. But then he's asked by publish. I mean, it's an industry. It's a capitalist industry in the early uh, in the late nineteenth century. So he's asked by the publisher to publish in this mode to appeal to the reader. And we know this about letters that Bakin wrote to um, his publishers, the interactions he had with the publishers, but also to in other letters um, and also in Bakin's diaries, he writes about this. And what he tries to do is to adapt, uh, not just Shunsui's. I mean, not really Shunsui's Ninja Bon, but then he thinks about specific um, Chinese vernacular works. So Bakin, um, he's very f- known for, of course, for the, you know, his Hakken then is a rewriting of the water margin, um, which is an extremely important um, Chinese martial vernacular novel. 
But what is um, also actually important to see is that Bakin um, was interested in other Chinese vernacular works that were more uh, specifically about uh, love. For example, um, Bakin talks about the Jinping Mei. He talks about scholar and beauty fiction. Uh, uh, like the which was a very um, important uh, genre in uh, late imperial China and which also uh, uh, which Bakin also received and uh, and he thinks about actually and even the Honglongmeng, the dream of the red chamber so Bakin mentions these texts and kind of um, thinks about adapting them to kind of please the editor and the readers to write more in an Ninjobon mode and Bakin is very ambiguous about this, these themes like love and desire. So he thinks this is not really, um, you know, uh, what he um, wants to do. He says it's a young, it's a kind of, um, he has to do that to kind of please the reader. So he has to kind of bring in some romantic episodes. In Bakin's Hakken, then actually there is the Shino and Hamaji. So if you know a little bit about Hakken, then the most, probably the most famous episode of Hakken then is this farewell scene. It's a very sentimental, romantic farewell between the dog warrior Shino and his lover Hamaji, which is a very sentimental, almost melodramatic kind of mode. And Bakin says he does this to please the reader. He does this to kind of please the reader and he kind of takes in elements from Chinese vernacular scholar and beauty fiction, for example. And, but then he does not really like this. This is just to please the reader. And so he kind of looks down on this type of topic, but he still weaves it in. But what I also try to show really is that his Yomihon are maybe going much beyond this, um, this melodramatic kind of romantic uh, writing, are very deeply concerned with the writing of sexual desire and um, love. And to a certain extent, he really shows that this is evil, but then it's not just evil. So he... Actually, throughout his kind of very long novel, Hakenden, which is extremely long. I mean, few people have actually read it to the, to the end. I actually tried to, I, I did it. So I kind of spent some time to read this uh, novel. And um, what you can really see is that this is a thread that goes throughout this entire text. And what I kind of try to do is to see the way that Ninjo, this um, really... Um, kind of shapes the narrative dynamics of this text. Indeed, I've always been fascinated by these interactions between the popular writers back then and between them and their pub publishers mm -hmm. or between them and their audiences. Right. And Bucking is such a complicated figure with all these stories surrounding him. And... I'm just really glad that he also turned up in your narrative of the Ninjo story. Mm. But I, I actually, um, um, for, for a bit of, tiny bit of selfish purpose, I want to share a bit <laughs> of the, the, what I found, when I found what Bakin wrote about Tamenaga Shinsu in his letter, I was just uh, speechless, honestly, because it was so outrageously mean. Right. But kind of hilarious in a way to see to see the top one popular writer to be treated like that. Yes. After he died. Right. And I think So yes. And so Bucking 
Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I think he's just really um, mean because I think he also feels a certain, I mean, he looks down on Taminaga Shunsi, but he also feels a competition, right? He knows how successful uh, Shunsi is. And then there are these um, editors who kind of, who think that writing in the Shunsi mode is so, will be so much more successful. And that's a kind of challenge to Bakin's own project. So there are these editors and readers who kind of don't value as his kind of own kind of um, literary project as much as Bakin would maybe wish to and kind of push him to write in this mode, uh, this kind of ninjo, ninjo bon mode that he kind of looks down on. And I think that really kind of that dimension, that dynamic kind of triggers his anger and um, kind of really a very kind of poisoned, kind of poisonous tongue that otherwise he would maybe not need to kind of have, right? So... But yeah. Bakin is a very kind of, I mean, he has a very kind of, he's a very cynical man, right? Not just towards uh, Shunsi, but also toward other people. He is, can be very mean, actually. Yes. Yeah. So for listeners, if, you, <laughs> if you've ever read anything about Bakin on morality and punishing the evil, if you think Bakin is a, is a great person, right. here's what Bakin had to say about Shunsi after he died. Bakin wrote that he heard he had heard that Shinsui drowned in a river after he got very drunk. He heard that Shunsui had been living in poverty and sickness ever since he received a penalty from the Bakufu officials. And drowning in the river after being drunk is such a well-deserved way to die. <laughs> It's yes, cool. yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. That that ruined it all, right? Um, for me, <laughs> about backing. But hopefully, you still want to read him because <laughs> yes, I, I still have to to see what other mean things he said about his uh, other writers of the time. But to return to this topic of ninja, um, it does seem rare to me when when I was reading this book that to deal with literature from the nineteenth century and twentieth centuries and treat them as a continuous corpus of works. Um, so you give a lot of discussion to Tsuboki Shoyo and his Shosetsu Shinzui, mm-hmm. or Essence of the Novels. Mm-hmm. Why is this work so important to a study of Ningjo? And does the nuance or does the meaning of Ningjo change in, um, in Tsuboki's works? Yeah, thank you so much for this question. That's really, um, I mean, it really pierces to the the bone, if I may say, to of the marrow of my my, my project. Um, so, uh, well, first of all, uh, Tsubochi Shoyo is a famous figure. He's a famous, particularly Shosetsu Shinzui. It's an extremely by now canonized text. So, so Shosetsu Shinzui, or The Essence of the Novel, is a treatise on the reform of fiction uh, published in 1885-86 by Shoyo. Um, and it's often seen, I mean, it's often described, I mean, traditionally it has been described almost as the beginning of modern literature in Japan, the moment when modern literary modernity takes on. And in this way, uh, this treatise, this um, text about, um, it's a treatise, uh, it's theory of the novel that shows its rights in the mid-1880s, has kind of gained an extremely canonized canonical status. So that's why it's such a kind of famous book. And in this um, treatise, what really uh, strikes out is that Shoyo, I mean, if there is a most important sentence 
in this treatise that every literary history about shoyo modern Japanese literature would cite. It would be the sentence where um, shoyo says, um, shōsetsu wa ninjō nari. Um, um, setai, um, setai fuzoku, I think he said, setai fuzoku wa um, sore ni tsugu, kore ni tsugu. So the novel is about ninjō, um, social customs, the representation of customs comes next. So he really says that ninjō is at the very, very core of um, the novel, the represent, I mean, the representational core, or what the novel does. And, um, and there have been discussions, and so why is this important? Why, why did uh, Shoyo's treatise, Shōsetsu Shinzō, really become so canonical in modern Japanese literary scholarship um, from, you could say, the late Meiji period onward throughout the post-war and even now? Um, this is because there have been what you could call modernization narratives. I mean, one important reason is these narratives about literary modernity that have been very much about um, emotion and interiority. So defining modern literature as, um, or the newness of modern literature through its focus on um, um, emotion, but emotion as a kind of psychological interiority that the modern novel, um, uh, especially the realist novel, would um, um, have. And um, following, of course, like Western models, you know, there's introduction of, I mean, English novel and so forth in the Meiji period. So there is this kind of new understanding, kind of epistemological shift, uh, which kind of allegedly saw emotion as a very important kind of subject of the novel, but in terms of the kind of psychological interiority. Um, and Ninjo in Shoyo's discourse has been very much seen as part of this uh, innovation um, and paradigm shift. Um, but what um, struck me when reading Shoyo's book, and then I started, I mean, I read Shosetsu Shinzui, but then actually Shoyo does not just write Shosetsu Shinzui, but then he writes uh, other critic has other critical texts. He writes novels himself, and if you look beyond Shoyo in the uh, Meiji early Meiji period, there's a lot of ninjo discourse and the novel, and um, and other scholars like Peter Kornitsky, of course, have pointed to that uh, before me. Uh, but it's kind of important to see that there is a continuity in the way that uh, uh, the novel kind of that Shoyo kind of addresses. Um, excuse me, there is a continuity in the way that the novel continues to be discussed in terms of ninjo. And first of all, I mean, they use the same term, um, ninjo. It's a kind of very much the same term that um, like also um, early modern novel discourse um, used. Um, and your question is, I mean, you ask, I mean, is, there, is ninjo a different term in, I mean, there's the same term in Shosetsu Shinzi, but is it used in a different way? And my answer to that would be yes and no. Um, it is um, the way that Shoyo understands ninjo is um, in a certain way very similar to earlier um, understandings. And if you look at Shosetsu Shinzu, he says, yes, the novel represents ninjo. That's the most important thing that the novel does. And the more, like, the more, and even in the, re so it's a discourse of the reform of fiction. So the reformed novel in the Meiji period, yes, it should represent ninjo, but how does Shoyo define ninjo? And that's really what struck me. That's very strange. He defines ninjo as something that is very negative. He defines ninjo as retsujo, like vulgar desire. 
or Jujo, kind of animalistic desire. These are kind of cinnamons that he use for, uses for Ninjo, or the 108 lusts. It's a Buddhist term, 108 lusts, but it's kind of striking how he uses as synonyms for Ninjo these kind of very negative terms, vulgar sexual desire. And um, so there is, again, you have this weird tension that the novel is supposed to represent something that at the same time is very problematic. And if you, and Shōsetsu Shinzui does not really um, pursue this tension so much. But if you look at Choyo's own novels, which are very much about vulgar sexual desire, uh, you will see that there is a problem for Shōyo there. The novel should represent Ninjo, but at the same time, it also engages, it represents these kind of vulgar customs of this kind of sexual um, customs of contemporary students and protagonists that should be um, uh, civilized, but at the same time, they, um, you know, they um, have these kind of almost, not, I mean, not almost, I mean, that's the term to show you uses these animalistic desires. And this kind of, so there's a tension there uh, that kind of uh, threatens or kind of almost subverts his project of literary reform. So there's one thing. So there's this continuity in seeing Ninjo as a kind of negative, problematic thing. And I think this goes, I mean, there's a continuity to earlier discourse and fiction. On the other hand, um, the way that Shoyo engages with Ninjo is also different from earlier discussions. And I think the most important difference is about Shoyo, so not just Shoyo, but also it's a concern that you have throughout the, the Meiji period, the early Meiji period, but then in Shoyo's time is this concern with civilization, enlightenment and civilization. And there is, um, of course, enlightenment and civilization, Bumei Kaika, is a, really a very kind of broad discourse in the Meiji period. And what Shoyo's project of literary reform, not just Shoyo, but maybe in Shoyo's case, Shoyo is the most sophisticated, you could say one of the most sophisticated proponents of literary reform in the 1880s. Uh, and what he really aims at in kind of his project of literary reform is to make the novel, the Japanese shōsetsu, a civilized and enlightened genre, a genre that would fit the new enlightened Meiji nation state. And to do so, um, the novel should be a civilized genre. And so you have a kind of shift in focus in discussions of uh, the novel toward kind of enlightenment and civilization. And then the question is, how does Ninjo fit in that kind of new civilizational discourse? And on the one hand, there are all these attempts to kind of, Choyo also tries to do that, to kind of elevate Ninjo to more civilizational content. So there are discussions, for example, about civilized love. So it's a new idea in the Meiji period. It's a kind of Christian idea that there is something like spiritual love a pure love that is kind of uh, non-visceral, that is non-bodily. Uh, it's a kind of spiritual, um, non-sexual kind of almost, right? So there are like Christian ideas, Victorian ideas that play in um, to kind of elevate uh, the kind of subject of the novelist Ninjo to this kind of elevated kind of spiritual level or make the protagonists of the novels not just like uh, lowbro, licentious protagonists like the Ninjo's Tanjiro, Ninjo Bond's Tanjiro, but make them doctors, make them students, like educated heroes who would be more civilized than 
the lowbrow heroes, the uneducated heroes of late Edo Ninjobon. But then at the same time, Ninjo always remains like disturbingly sexual and disturbingly from a perspective of civilization and enlightenment, disturbingly uncivilized. So Shoyo represents, he kind of writes about these students, student customs and students supposedly should be, I mean, they're educated. They're all like students. I mean, in his novel, there are students going, I mean, of the Imperial, uh, Tokyo Imperial University. So they're the elite of the country. But at the same time, their customs are like going to see prostitutes, low-brow prostitutes. So their ninjo is actually disturbingly uncivilized. <laughs> and in this way, ninjo continues to be kind of disturbingly sexual, kind of visceral, um, kind of threatening almost this kind of project of civilization and enlightenment. And in this way, um, there is a tension that kind of surrounding Ninjo, there are contentions surrounding Ninjo that continue into Meiji. So this is, uh, for a long detour, this is what I, how I would, <laughs> would answer your question. No, that, that, that was great. Um, I think the, 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 this is a very important um, argument to make is that, um, well, that challenges the genealogy of Shōsetsu, that challenges the division between early modern and modern Japan, because you're arguing that um, Ninjō, the understanding of Ninjō is one thing that connects um, 19th century and 20th century Japanese literature. Mm. So... As we're moving towards the end for today's episode, um, I want to, well, ask you my usual loaded question based on <laughs> what we were discussing. So in challenging such division, mm. as you were saying, mm. the division between early modern and modernity, mm. what do you think are some approachable perspectives to take for us in Japanese studies or to broaden the horizon a little bit, all of us in non-European studies? Yes, I mean, that's a really um, challenging question, and I am <laughs> kind of shivering a little bit to kind of answer that. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, just in terms of my um, own experience of writing this book, it is actually very, I mean, I felt it to be very hard to challenge um, the Edo-Meiji divide, not just because it's a, um, um, disciplinary divide in our field, but because, I mean, if you actually look at the texts, um, Edo and Meiji are, I mean, in some extents, to some extents, I mean, there is actually a, I mean, there are really, uh, there is a divide. There is, there are tremendous epistemological shifts that go on in the 19th century. And it is, um, for example, if you look at Shoyo's, Tsubot Shoyo's, um, novels, if you look later at uh, Natsume Soseki's novels, if you look at other uh, novels in the Meiji period, um, Higuchi Chiyo, other important writers, um, if you look at late Edo texts like Hakenden, Ninjobon, there is actually a gap. I mean, it's undeniable. It's there. And to some extent, when I was working on this project, this gap felt daunting. How can I really connect these, um, to a certain extent, very kind of almost unbridgeable fields? Um, in terms of representation, in terms of um, zeitgeist, in terms of uh, worldview. Um, but then I, at the same time, I felt 
there are also connections. And I mean, I made this connection through the lens of Ninjo, which I felt was there. Um, and, and kind of Ninjo discourse, um, some kind of, um, kind of tensions, uh, contentions that run through the novel as a kind of continuous space in the 19th century. Um, but it was hard. And, um, and, but at the same time, also very fulfilling, very interesting. And if you ask me how I think that the field should move on, um, I, uh, I mean, first of all, and then I also want to say, I'm very grateful that there, uh, recently there has been a kind of newly growing body of studies on the 19th, uh, 19th century, uh, kind of, kind of challenging, challenging the, uh, on 19th century uh, fiction, both on the Meiji side, on the Edo side, late Edo side, but also really kind of bridging um, this divide. I, I, I just want to mention, I mean, Will Hedberg's, Will Hedberg's research at the University of Arizona, right, your university, uh, is a scholar who um, recently has written on the um, reception of the water margin across the Edo-Meiji divide. It's a very interesting, and the emergence of literature as a concept um, through the lens of the water margin. So um, which is a very interesting um, topic. And um, there's been other research in terms of the, um, you know, I mean, think of this as an earlier work, but also Jonathan Swicker's work about, the, you know, the uh, sentimental fiction, melodrama as a kind of lens to look uh, at kind of 19th century as a broader literary space. Um, and there would be certainly, I mean, ways to look at popular fiction. I mean, there's this entire field of early Meiji fiction um, I mean, Peter Korniski has looked at this, but there is also much more work to be done on kind of early Meiji, the early Meiji field, um, where you have the survival of all these genres, um, uh, late Edo genres, um, Gesaku continues to be even unto, up to Shoyo. I mean, Shoyo engages with the Gesaku uh, very much, and he writes himself in kind of Kokkebon, kind of uh, Ninjobon, Yomihon modes. So he's very aware of these various Gesaku genres. So there could be, uh, uh, I mean, this would be certainly something that um, uh, needs to be um, explored. Um, at the same time, what I kind of felt very strongly in my research is not to look so much about these genealogies of Gesaku per se, the continuations of, um, you know, the kind of Gesaku genres, like late Edo period genres into Meiji. But what I wanted to do is to kind of look more at the canonical genres. Uh, for example, Shoyo's um, kind of, towards Shoyo's Shosetsu Shinzui, but then also his own novels, uh, authors like Soseki, who allegedly had left these early, their early, well, in Soseki's case, in Soseki's case, it's not that clear, but I wanted to also look at authors who had allegedly left their late, the early modern origins behind these early modern, um, there's early modern modes, literary kind of modes behind. And I wanted to kind of show how actually in this more canonical, supposedly non early modern, um, in these texts, there are actually very, very important continuities to, um, kind of earlier, late, late uh, kind of the earlier, um, early modern modes, um, uh, and I wanted to kind of challenge um, the early modern modern divide on that level, and and I think uh, that would be I mean fascinating if uh, uh, I mean research could be done um, 
also in, in this field. But I think the field is really moving on. I'm thinking about other scholars, like, I mean, Satoko Shimazaki has been working on the 19th century theater and, for example, uh, on media. And, uh, and I think she's recently also working on media. And I think there's a... and and also looking into continuities in, on the stage between Edo and Meiji. And I think there's a lot of work to be done in all kinds of various uh, fields. And I think uh, that the field is moving on. So um, I don't have really any kind of advice because I, or kind of any, or any kind of vision or kind of any, uh, do I think there is uh, something that absolutely needs to be done? Um, but it's just a feeling that I think that the field is kind of making this division between early modern and modern uh, the kind of more and more porous and on various levels, be it like media, be it sentiment, be it uh, Chinese vernacular literacy, uh, on various kind of levels, uh, uh, scholars are uh, starting to kind of um, travel throughout divisions. And that's very fascinating. And I think it's definitely a trend in the field. It's a very welcome, it's a very fascinating trend. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how things are going to develop. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an exciting moment in that sense. Yeah, I think so, too. I, it's, it's, it's really great to see um, books like yours and Dr. Hedberg's as well, um, and many, actually many other authors who've speaken, spoken on this channel, that their studies just melt everything together and put them nicely into a into a project that's not only about japan mm -hmm. or that's not only about literature right there there are bigger things behind all of these exactly and yeah. yes and that's something truly exciting to witness right especially you just mentioned also the china the china dimension and then of course there's a uh, the kind of these transnational uh, kind of dimensions, the, the the flow of books between, of course, there's Korea as well. Um, yeah, and then various forms of literacy, their classical Sinitic literacy, vernacular Chinese literacy, and so forth. I mean, there is so much to be said, and that really, sh I mean, in the 19th century in particular, such a melting pot of all this, right? Uh, such a kind of rich moment uh, where all these kind of various things kind of meld together. Um, so I'm sure there's um, a lot of research coming out in coming years on this field. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, that was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you for all your challenging questions. <laughs> and this well, opportunity I hope you had also. fun too. <laughs> and for our listeners who are interested in novels and love stories check out this new book by daniel park licentious fictions ninjo and the 19th century japanese novel this is jingyi from the new books network and i will see you in the next episode until then goodbye <laughs>